Hey, we are into uh, our fourth week of this thing called Lent, the season, the seven weeks that uh, lead up to our celebration of Jesus' resurrection on Easter morning. And Lent is a season of, of uh, spiritual introspection. It's a time to take your spiritual temperature, get a better picture of, you know, how are you really doing in your relationship with the Lord? Uh, for some, that personal examination might include uh, some fasting, you know, abstaining from a food or an activity or, or certain foods. It might mean special times of prayer or joining a Bible study or serving in the church in a special way during the season of Lent or the community. Whatever it is, the purpose of Lent is to help bring greater spiritual focus to our personal lives. And as a whole church, we've been having a special focus around the idea of sharing hope sharing the hope of Christ with others in our community. And we've talked about how most of us, you know, we are not evangelists and uh, we would not feel comfortable in that role. We've seen in Scripture that we are all not called to be evangelists, uh, but we are all called to a ministry of evangelism. The evangel, that's the New Testament Greek word for good news or gospel. God's good news about Jesus. We are all called to share the evangel about Jesus through how we live. And our key verse for this whole series is from 1 Peter chapter 3, starting with verse 15, where it says, In your hearts lift up Christ as Lord. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone for the hope that you have. But do this with gentleness and respect, keeping a clear conscience, so that those who speak maliciously against your good behavior in Christ may be ashamed of their slander. Our lives should reflect the character of of our Christ in such a way that others might get curious about uh, why we do what we do and why we are the way that we are. As followers of Jesus, we're responsible to live questionable lives that perhaps evoke some curiosity, and then we should be prepared for the subsequent conversations. Our hope in Jesus should find expression in our weekly schedule and our daily relationships. Because we step into a new day every day, and we step into it, first of all, reconciled to God. Isn't that a good way to start the day, knowing that you have peace with God through your faith in Jesus Christ? We start each day knowing that we're recreated by God. He's given us a new life, given us His Holy Spirit, so that whatever happens throughout the day, God's Spirit is going to provide us everything that we need. But equally important to start each day knowing that we bear the image of God to the world that we have a job to do for Christ, we have a mission from God, we are his ambassadors, his, uh, his agents, his representatives in our workplace, our school, our neighborhoods. We're his envoys to this broken world that we walk through each and every day. So you have a big job to do, to be God's man, to be God's woman in your particular circumstances. And to give us some practical tools on how to do that, on how to live these questionable lives, we're using this little guide from the book Surprise the World by Michael Frost. In it, he suggests five simple things, five weekly habits that we can develop to learn to live missionally or intentionally to impact others for Christ. And he uses a simple acronym so that we can all remember it. The five habits is the acronym BELLS. Bless, eat, listen, learn, and sent. Bless, eat, listen, learn, and sent. <clears throat> Last week, we looked at the first of those habits, to bless. And the challenge we were left with was to try and bless three people each week with either a word of encouragement, an act of kindness, or some simple, thoughtful gift. Bless one person who's a part of the church, 
Bless somebody who's not a part of the church and then one of either category. Three people. Word of encouragement, act of kindness, simple but thoughtful gift. And I've heard some great stories this week from people who took that challenge seriously and made the effort to bless somebody. Cookies delivered to a neighbor, a flat tire changed, a time just spent in unhurried conversation. People who made the effort to bless, and it is an effort. Uh, it takes an effort. Habits take time to develop. And so at first it's hard, but the more you do it, the easier it gets. And so if you did intentionally last week your three blessings, guess what? This week it'll be easier for you, okay? Now, if you didn't do your homework and you didn't intentionally bless anyone last week, well, you might be breaking out into a cold sweat right now. But don't worry, I'm not going to ask you to stand up and confess. Uh, but I'm also not going to let you off the hook. If you want to be a healthy follower of Christ, if you want others to know the saving love of Christ, if you want to see, see your church grow by reaching new people, if you want your church to thrive, friends, this is how it has to begin, you connecting with other people. So don't settle for a self-contained Christianity that's all about you. God has an important job for you to do. And today we're talking about the second habit, the E for eat. How great is that? Your church is encouraging you to eat. Some of us don't need much encouragement. This habit isn't about us, you know, just putting on the feed bag and chowing down. No, we're talking about the surprising connection between food and faith. We're talking about eating as a way of engaging people with the gospel. And what a simple idea because most church people already have a pretty good relationship with food. We eat at wedding receptions and funerals. We have breakfast like yesterday's great men's breakfast. We have special desserts. We have flock gatherings, dinners for eight, salt dinners on Sunday nights for the high school kids, Thursday night dinners for over the 200 people involved with youth club and online and the bridge. We have coffee and cookies every Sunday morning thanks to Gina Kapuras and her hospitality team. And if you're looking for somebody to bless, go bless them because every week they provide for us and take care of us. You should bless, you can do three of them and you get it all done in a hurry. We have potlucks. We have catered meals. Actually, it's hard to get Christians together without food showing up. But here's the thing. All these food things that we're doing are primarily with those we already know with all those who already know the gospel, our question is how do we engage with people whom we don't know well and who do not know the gospel? As always, let's let Jesus be our God. As you read through the gospels, you quickly realize there are so many stories that involve Jesus and food. There are big stories, the feeding of the 5,000, but there are little stories too of Jesus just being in a home gathered around a table. Even a cursory reading of the Gospels, you'd be amazed to see how frequently Jesus is scrutinized and criticized for whom he ate with. Luke 7.34, the Son of Man came eating and drinking, and you say here's a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Luke 15, verse 1, now the tax collectors and sinners were all gathering around the table to hear Jesus, but the Pharisees and the teachers of the law muttered, this man welcomes sinners and eats with them. How awful. You can hear the disgust in their voice. He, he eats with these people. And right after that, Jesus tells that wonderful parable about the shepherd who leaves the 99 safely tucked away in their pen and goes out to seek after that one lost sheep. That great story came out of a meal. For Jesus, table fellowship was more than just food. It was a visual demonstration of the kingdom of God. A meal around the table was a tool 
how Jesus invested in people. And then it was a way for Jesus to invite people to take their next spiritual step. Around the table, Jesus invited people into conversation, community, and then commitment. Conversation, community, and then commitment. Around the table, that's where he did the bulk of his evangelism. Not with the big crowds, but around the table enjoying good food. Here's the main point for today. Our tables, our meals can serve as a missional tool to engage others in conversation about life and faith and who God is. Through sharing meals, we can then invite people into community and eventually, hopefully, to commitment. When Jesus wanted to describe what does this faith relationship with God look like, he illustrated it with a meal. Revelation 3.20, Jesus said, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I'll come in and do what? Eat with him or her. For Jesus, the table becomes a way to draw people into conversation, community, and commitment. And then he invites us to do the same thing. Here's another example from Jesus, Luke chapter 14. In fact, all of chapter 14 is about food. One Sabbath, when Jesus went to eat the house of a prominent Pharisee, he was being carefully watched. And there in front of him was a man suffering from an abnormal swelling of his body. Jesus asked the Pharisees and experts in the law, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath or not? But they remained silent. So Jesus took hold of the man, he healed him, and sent him on his way. In the ancient world of Jesus, who you ate with said a lot about who you are and where you belonged in society. Who you ate with defined your social structure. Your, the, the social standing of the community was on display at these dinner parties. Your rank, your prestige was on display. Dinner parties were almost like a photograph of the social pecking order. From prominent people to the eager up-and-comers to the wannabes, you want to get invited to the party and then be seen sitting closest to the host. That's why Jesus was harangued and criticized, because of whom he ate with and who was willing to host him. In, one verse, or in verse 1, we're told that Jesus' presence at this little soiree is not because of a sincere invitation. It says he was being carefully watched. His hosts were hoping to trap Jesus. The whole thing was a setup to see if Jesus would break their Sabbath rules and heal a man that they dragged in, this poor guy who was just a pawn in their game. And as Jesus usually does, he takes the bait, heals the man, but then he turns the tables on them in verse 5. Then he asks them, if one of you has a child or an ox that falls into a well on a Sabbath day, will you not immediately pull it up? And they had nothing to say. In one sentence, Jesus just wipes them out. He reveals their kind of nasty spirituality, how little they understood God's heart. But there's more going on here than just that because the Jewish audience of Jesus' day would have heard the story and all kinds of red lights would have gone off, starting with the second word of the chapter, the word Sabbath. This dinner party was on the Jewish Sabbath, and they would read this verse and go, oh, no, they didn't, you know. No God-honoring Jew would host a dinner party on the Sabbath because according to all the laws that they created, I mean, the Pharisees had thousands of rules about what you could or could not do on the Sabbath, and cooking was a definite no-no. Nothing that looked like work in any way, shape, or form. God-honoring Jews made all the preparations for the Sabbath in the days ahead so that there was no meal preparation being done. But hosting a dinner party on the Sabbath. That means they were making somebody work. 
Their servants were working, keeping the cups filled and the plates full and cleaning up afterwards. The, hypocrisies of the, uh, the hypocrisy of the Pharisees is astounding here. They're trying to set a snare for Jesus, get him into some kind of a compromising situation, getting him to do something wrong according to their rules, and they're doing all kinds of wrong things, breaking all their own Sabbath laws, but they don't care. They're just salivating over the chance that Jesus will trip up, and then they can say, gotcha. Sort of sounds like American politics to me. Well, the text goes on in verse 7. Let me just read the rest of it. It says, then he noticed how the guests picked up the place, picked the places of honor at the table. He told them this parable. When someone invites you to a wedding feast, do not take the place of honor. For the person more distinguished than you may have been invited. And if so, the host who invited both of you will come and say to you, give this person your seat. And then humiliated, you will have to take the least important place. But when you are invited, take the lowest place. So that when your host comes, he will say to you, friend, move up to a better place. Then you will be honored in the presence of all the guests. For all those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who are humble themselves will be exalted. And then Jesus said to his host, When you give a luncheon or dinner, do not invite your friends, your brothers, your sisters, your relatives, or your rich neighbors. If you do, they may invite you back, and so you will be repaid. But when you give a wedding banquet, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed, because although they cannot repay you, you will be repaid at the resurrection of the righteous. Jesus, we're told, was being carefully watched. Well, guess what? Jesus was watching too. And he saw all these people jockeying for position at the table, saw how consumed they were with looking good. So he gave them a parable, not about looking good, but about being good. Instead of showing off your own self-importance, you'd be better served taking the posture of humility. If you want to move up, then sit at the kids' table. If you begin at the lowest rung, the only place you can go is up. And as I said, in the ancient world, where you sat at meals defined your social standing. If you want to be important, then you surround yourself with important people that they can return the favor and offer you a generous invitation. Kind of a I scratch your back, you scratch mine. But Jesus said God's kingdom doesn't work that way. God is throwing a different kind of party. Jesus says that when you have a luncheon or a dinner party, don't just invite those who are going to boost your social standing. Don't just post selfies about all the important people you've met. Invite the loners and the losers and the left out. Invite those who can't pay you back. So why does Jesus insist on this kind of a, a guest list? Because that's exactly what God does for us through Jesus Christ. We are the poor in this story. We are the ones who cannot repay God for his grace and mercy towards us. You and me, we are the ones who fit into these categories. Verse 8 says, when someone invites you to a wedding feast, and you have to go, wait a minute, Jesus isn't at a wedding feast. He's just at a regular dinner party. Why does he bring up wedding feast? Well, first of all, wedding in ancient world was the most lavish party you could imagine. It went on for days. It was the biggest party people knew. In fact, if you remember, Jesus' very first miracle was a catering request at a, at a wedding banquet. More wine, because the party had gone on so long, the host was running out. Second, in Scripture, a wedding is always a metaphor for the kingdom of God. God is the groom and the people, the church is his bride. In the theological dictionary of the New Testament, it says, Jesus sees in marriage between a man and a woman the original form of God honoring human fellowship. 
The Bible begins with a wedding between Adam and Eve, a created world in which God is now the officiant. The wedding is an invitation to, to mutuality and intimacy and hospitality, and unfortunately the perfection lasts about a second. And ever since we've been on this desperate search to recover what was lost. For Jesus, we are the poor, we are the blind, we are the crippled. Those are not literal categories, they're, they're, they're figurative categories, the poor and the lame. Because since the fall of humanity, uh, we have been poorly limping around in the darkness, groping blindly, trying to find something worthy to worship. And most of the time, we just end up worshiping self. But all along, God is offering himself to us. We are the ones who are invited to his wedding banquet. And then we get permission to invite others to sit at our table. Isn't that great? <coughs> and so now, through the simple act of sharing a meal, a cup of coffee, a donut, we can actually follow Christ's example. We can invite people into conversation, into community, and maybe into commitment. Through the simple act of eating, we can share the hope of Christ. Whom we eat with really does matter. Now, unfortunately, oftentimes we're not all that different from these dinner party guests. We're kind of jockeying for position. Do we intentionally make a place for others? <clears throat> We're often too busy, too focused on ourselves to even have any space in our schedule to even think about sharing a meal with someone outside of our close-knit circle. The second habit of eating puts us right in sync with Jesus and his desire that we can invite others to the great wedding banquet. As followers of Jesus, we can live questionable lives, surprise the world by the way we use our meals as instruments of missional living for Jesus. And we've already got it in our schedule. Most of us eat three meals a day, seven days a week. All Michael Frost is asking is that we think about using three of those meals in a more missional way. Change our focus. 21 opportunities to invite someone to share your table at home or at a restaurant, in the office, at a, at a food court, at a cafeteria. And add to that just getting together for coffee or to have a donut. Does not have to be some big, lavish dinner party. Is there even one person Someone God is speaking to you to get to know someone better, and you've just never made the invitation. Maybe it's that crazy neighbor that nobody knows in your neighborhood. You know, we're into spring, and yesterday I was out. Everybody in my neighborhood was out yesterday, right? There are families that had moved in over the winter that I'd never seen before. And it's like, this is the time of year to invite somebody over who just maybe moved into your neighborhood, and you've never actually met them. Just go up and meet them. Introduce yourself. I know we're busy. The idea of maybe eating with three people per week, that just seems like completely impossible. All right, I'm willing to downscale that goal. Just do it with one person or three people at once since you can knock out the whole thing, okay? But don't avoid the issue. Can we learn the habit of using our tables to be missional for Jesus? Can we use our meals just to get to know people? Let's show the world what the kingdom of God can be like. Let's eat for Jesus. Let's show people right now that the kingdom of God is going to be a festive wedding banquet with dancing. Let's eat for Jesus. I bet you've never had anybody say that to you before. Let's eat for Jesus because Jesus discovered disciples over meals. Jesus explained complex theological things with food, like the meaning of the cross, and he did it at a dinner, and he just talked about bread and wine. Let's think of our restaurants and homes as missional outposts where we can encounter and connect with others. In our fast-paced culture, 
We are changing our relationship with food and eating meals. Food is becoming much more of just a commodity, a food, a fuel that we shove in our mouths and consume as quickly as possible. We're looking for the fastest, the cheapest options. We eat out more than people have ever eaten out before. We have food subscriptions so that the food that comes into our house is already ready to go. We get delivery from Uber Eats six nights a week. How many of us eat, you know, on our laps while watching Jeopardy? Uh, How many of us have these gorgeous dining rooms that are never used? How many of us have these beautiful, expensive kitchens and we never cook? Shame on us for not using the space that God has given to us as an opportunity to witness for Him. Eating together connects us to the power of relationship. A table is a great equalizer. I know there are obstacles. Food allergies, everybody's got a different diet from paleo, keto, vegan, vegan, you know, gluten-free, and so on. Struggles with eating disorders, the struggles with the way our culture shames people for the food they eat or maybe the way that they eat. Friends, we are losing the ability to show simple hospitality. We get locked away in our little enclaves in suburbia. Think that we can't have anybody into our house unless it's absolutely pristine and perfect. You know, not, not one dog hair, you know. That we can't have somebody to eat unless the food is, is lavish and catered or something like that. No. Christians, we have got to push back against that kind of perfectionist attitude. Just have some people over for hot dogs or tofu burgers, as disgusting as that sounds to me. (laughs) Keep it simple. Keep it cheap. And realize there is such great joy in sharing food with others. On Monday nights, Don and I host our church's young adult group in our home. For about every Monday night for the last three years, we cook dinner from anywhere between 8 to 15 people. Sometimes it goes up to 20 and it's simple food. This past Monday was just spaghetti and French bread. And Donna made this really good cake that I didn't really want to share with everybody because they just eat the whole thing. You know, it's like locusts. But we jam. We have a little dining room. We jam into the dining room, spill over into the, to the living room if necessary. We eat first, and then we have our Bible study afterwards. But actually, both Donna and I feel that the meal is probably more important than the Bible study. Because it's in the meal that relationships happen. That's when people share stories and laugh and they can let go of the pressures and the pains of the week. The meals open people up, puts us all on the same level, draws people closer. Something beautiful happens in conversation around a table. I wish our church had a hundred gatherings like that in homes for all different ages and life stages. But you know what? Somebody's got to be willing to be inconvenienced. Somebody's got to be willing to make the meal. Somebody's got to be willing to do the dishes afterwards. And so often, we just don't want to be inconvenienced and we are missing our opportunities to be hospitable, to practice hospitality for Christ. We need to know how to eat for Jesus. Let me end with this quote from Barry Jones. It's printed on the back of your bulletin. You can pick one up on the way out if you didn't get one. I'd encourage you to follow the link that I put there. Read the entire article because it's really exactly what we're talking about here this morning. He writes this. I'm convinced that one of the most important spiritual disciplines for us to recover is the kind of, in the kind of world in which we live is the discipline of table fellowship. In the fast-paced, tech-saturated, attention-deficit, disordered culture in which we find ourselves, Christians need to recover the art of a slow meal around a table with people that we care about. 
Table fellowship doesn't often make the list of classic spiritual disciplines, but in the midst of a world that increasingly seems to have lost its way with regard to manners of both food and soul, Christian spirituality has something important to say about the way that sharing tables nurtures us, nourishes us both physically and spiritually. We need a recovery of the spiritual significance of what we eat, where we eat, and with whom we eat. I really like that phrase, a slow meal around a table. You know, because Jesus was really the master at that. He knew the value of sharing food to create conversation, community, and commitment. Your homework this week, instead of fasting from a meal, instead of abstaining from a meal, I want to encourage you to eat. Even though abstaining might be a more Lenten traditional practice, we want you to eat this week. Dinner, donuts, whatever it might be, Try to eat with three people, and if you can, but if you can't, at least one, eat with somebody in Jesus' name and for his sake, and maybe invite them to this great wedding banquet that will be heaven. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, I thank you just for this very, very simple concept. I'm almost embarrassed that I have to preach about it because it's just so simple, and yet it's not something that most of us do. We are so isolated and so blocked off and so uh, jealous of our time that we can't even open our homes to one new person. Lord, help us to recover the need for a slow meal around a table, the conversation, the community, and hopefully the commitment. Help us to do that this week in Jesus' name. Amen.